Hello? Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's going okay. Actually, our big event for this week is that we had our Starlink package finally arrive. We have been in line for Starlink internet since December of 2021. It is now September of 2022, and it finally arrived. We got it all set up, and now we have respectable internet despite our rural setting. So very, very happy. Congratulations. And to Starlink, if you would like to sponsor a future episode, just get in touch with us and we are happy to let you do that. Yeah, we'll take any of the billions of dollars that you have, Elon Musk. We'll, we'll take it. Or even less than that if you're thinking about it. <laughs> All right. So that's our pipe dream. Uh, how was your week? <laughs> My week is going great. Uh, the morning this morning, it was crisp, fallish weather. I recently got my mountain bike back, and so I went mountain biking this morning, and it was so wonderful. I can't even tell you how delightful I found my beginning of the day. It was perfect. That's great. I started my day with Hebrew, so... The, exactly know. the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I'm calling today. I had something I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about the intersection of two topics, discipleship and shame. Mm. Uh, and specifically, I want to talk about what discipleship is like without shame. And I want to talk about this because I think that discipleship historically has involved some shame-producing ways of the disciple or relating to the disciplee. Now, let mm -hmm. me be super clear as a, a pastor. When I say historically, I don't mean this is the way it's been done in the church that I go to now or the church I used to pastor at, and I'm just trying to backhandedly talk trash about I, that is not something I would ever do, uh, nor is it what I mean here. What I really think I mean is I think that folks sometimes who have not been trained in how to disciple well often use shame as a technique. And I mm. think it is harmful. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And though I think mentorship and discipleship are in some ways different, at least semantically different, I wrestled with this a little bit when it came to mentoring. And so Denver Seminary, one of the things that I love about their curriculum is a requirement to receive mentoring throughout your education, throughout your degree. And so as an MDiv student, I am required to have six semesters of training and mentoring. And I was required at the beginning to select a mentor that would be with me over the course of those six semesters. And as I sat down and I thought through who I wanted, one of the things I was actively working against in my, in my own mental model of who an ideal candidate would be is... I didn't want somebody 
who was very shame-based and you ought to be doing this. And how did you do on the thing that I told you to do this week? And are you holding up your end of the bargain? And if so, why not? And right. Those are the things I was working, uh, working against. And instead, when I approached Dean, Dean embodied all of these characteristics that are anti-shame. He's very relational, very conversation-based, very, let's explore this together. Let's presume that I, as the mentor, do not have all of the answers here. And instead, let's come alongside one another and talk this through and sense what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in this moment. So all of that is is kind of the antithesis of shame in my mind. Is that somewhat of what you're driving at? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I think of shame, what I'm thinking about is recognizing the distance between where somebody is and where they need to be and pointing out the distance without actually helping them figure it out. Hmm. Is that a fair summary of how shame happens? I hadn't thought about it in exactly those terms, but I don't find anything in it to disagree with. Because I think what shame really comes down to for me is a sense of almost hopelessness as if the point of discipleship was to point out the sin in somebody's life. Yep, here we go. I got it. I know what I want to say about this. (laughs) There are two ways. You said this years and years ago, way back when you were reading through first or second Timothy, I don't remember which one, you pointed out that there were two ways to go about helping somebody move forward. And I'm not going to actually quote you perfectly on this. I'm going to say something a little bit different, but you can make somebody move by pointing out where they're at, or you can make somebody move by pointing out where they could be. Mm. shame-based discipleship points out where people are at and just says, stop it. Like that Bob Newhart mad TV <laughs> sketch, right? Um, if, if you haven't seen this, you have to go watch it. It captures the heart of bad discipleship so powerfully. Yes, because as a response to every single thing that this person is doing, his solution is stop it, and rather emphatically stop it, as if the guy hadn't thought of that. And that's the thing, right? Like, I have never, as a pastor, talked to somebody, not never, very seldom do I talk to somebody and they need to be informed that they are sinning. Sometimes that legitimately does happen. But normally that's not the issue. Normally people are aware that they're not that they are sinning. They just don't know how to stop it. And so when you tell them stop it stop it stop it, what they feel is hopeless. Well, and I think whatever it is, saying stop it, stop it, stop it gives a whole lot of power to it. Whatever Mm. it is you're trying to stop. And if that's all we're going to focus on in the discipleship process, no thank you. 
my guilt and shame that I carry with me that I brought into this discipleship moment already point. is doing enough of that. Thank you very much. I don't need to emphasize it any longer. I need some emphasis, some help, understanding what the path away from it looks like. And I would like to not give it the sort of power that it's had in my life to this point. I would really like to move on to something else, which is really what repentance is, right? Metanoia, this Mm -hmm. turning away, this turning aside and going in a different direction. Show me the different direction. I don't want to talk about it anymore, which is not to say we should ignore our sin. I don't mean that. We just shouldn't give it the sort of power that stop it seems to imply. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of Paul's letters, whenever they have a stop doing this section, it's always followed up by a start doing this section. Take off these habits, put on these habits. And I think that that's an important part of it is not just stopping at stop doing that. But talking about, okay, now what do we do? And the other thing that, at least for me, often I find in shame-based discipleship processes is that they don't recognize the length of the journey. Mm. I wholeheartedly believe that God can set me free in a moment. I believe that God can change a habit in my life in a moment. I believe that God gives grace to make that happen supernaturally. But I also believe that sometimes, for whatever reason I don't understand, he doesn't. And when it doesn't happen in a moment, by the grace of God, I feel like often I expect of myself that it is going to happen in a moment of my own volition. And often major life change just takes longer than I want it to in myself and in others. So I guess what I'm saying is, if we start looking at this, one key element of good discipleship is patience. Yes. Which implies a much longer relationship than... I think a mentoring relationship sometimes tends to have. Like you sign up to be mentored for six months or whatever it is. But true mentorship, discipleship, is this gradual, long-haul process that I like what you're saying in terms of it's not going to happen all at once. And it's not necessarily even going to be in a moment of your choosing. I saw a meme the other day on Facebook that, you know, usually I'm pretty uh, against most of them, but this one actually, you know, made a lot of sense. And it was in terms of dieting. It just said, eating one good meal is not going to make the weight go away, just like you didn't gain it by eating one burrito. (laughs) Exactly. And so we didn't get to our present state of development all at once. We're not going to get to the next stage all at once either. So this is a process-oriented event. And I think that is the mindset that discipleship needs to embody 
in order for it to not be a shame-based event. There needs to be an understanding that this is going to be an imperfect process. It's going to be slow. It's going to be gradual, sometimes imperceptible, but it is worth it and it can be done. That's a very different thing than, all right, here's where you are. Here's where you need to be. Here's your steps for doing so. Go do it. Come report back to me. If you didn't do it, we're going to talk about why. Mm. You just described what I would call instructional discipleship. Mm. You're at A, you need to get to B, hear the steps, go do them. I think there's an incarnational type of discipleship that says, you're at A, I've been to B, why don't you go with me? Yeah, And that is a longer, slower, more complicated road involving lots and lots of tripping but a large chunk of what i think a good mentor offers in that incarnational discipleship is hope Mm -hmm. i believe for you that you can do this i believe for you that you can overcome this issue in your life that the power of god is adequate for this because so often I think hope is what's missing. And a mentee needs to borrow a mentor's confidence and hope. Yeah. And even in terms of learning to discern the Spirit's work in your life, you need Mm. that confirmation from your mentor who's been there, who's learned to discern God's formative work in their own life. And so when the mentor is literally inviting you to say, okay, you're at A. Where is God calling you to be next? What is God wanting to do in your heart and your life right now? And for you to discern that and take a tentative step toward that, and for that mentor to say, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're onto something here. God is definitely in what you're talking about. That's mm. a huge confidence boost, and it's a, it gives hope Not only that you can rightly discern God's call in your life, but that because it is God's call, it has this potential for success that it wouldn't have had if it was just like, I know I need to do better at whatever. That's that's a different starting point. Well, and you're assuming something that I was not assuming that I really like. I'm thinking about mentoring largely as a process of helping a person no longer do certain things. You are envisioning mentoring as a process of discovering who God made you to be, which is a much more positive end goal that I think is extraordinary. I don't know that I have thought through discipleship as a whole in terms of whether or not that should be the definition. I can say that this has been the approach that Dean has taken with me, and I have benefited greatly from it. I have been able to, you know, I've been invited to reflect, where am I? What is God doing in me? What is he wanting to do in me? And how can I respond to that? How can I build a plan that is in response to what God is wanting to do in my heart and my life. 
And as we come to discern that together through conversation and through prayer, there is a synergy. There's a there's an excitement that kind of comes about when you say, no, I, I really think this is where we need to go. So that's been super powerful for me. Is that how discipleship should be? I'd have to think more on it because I actually think there's a time and a place for the teaching and the guidance that is more directive yeah. than I'm describing it. Yeah, no, I've heard people say that the newer you are in your faith, the more directive discipleship should be. The further, more mature you are in your faith, the more you let the person you're discipling follow the leading of the Holy Spirit because they've learned how to do that. So I, I totally agree with you, but I want to come back to this. If you were to give somebody some pointers on how to do the kind of mentoring or discipling that you just described Dean has done with you, what would you suggest? Get really nitty-gritty and practical for me, because I'll be honest, when you describe that kind of mentoring and discipleship, something in me, and I suspect in many people, responds, oh, yes, I want someone like that in my life. <laughs> yes. And that result, the only way I know to make that happen is to help us all be more of that person in someone else's life. But it is not an easy thing that necessarily comes natural to, to people. So if I wanted to disciple somebody that way, what would I have, what, what could I do to be more effective in discipling someone in that sort of discernment that you described? Yeah. How do you channel your inner Dean to become a good mentor? Yes. WWDD. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he would be extraordinarily unthrilled to hear that that's our yeah. model. Uh, so yeah. I should not have a picture of him that I <laughs> set up whenever I pray. <laughs> right, yeah. With a take candle down, in front of it. Take it down. I shouldn't have never sent that to you. Okay, I'm I'm sorry, Dean. I, I totally misunderstood. <laughs> Um, so if that's not it, then what do I do? But I think that speaks honestly to the heart with which this type of mentorship should be done, I think. Or the way Issuing I Issuing pictures? <laughs> no, in fact, quite the opposite. That, that somebody would be disappointed to hear that this is the way somebody approached it. Because, mm. you know, his basic starting point has been, hey, I'm happy to walk alongside you here and I am happy to have these conversations and, and this relationship. But if you think I've got all the answers, you're mistaken. And I don't presume to be the Holy Spirit and to know exactly what you what step you need to be taking next. But I will be a fellow companion on that journey. And then what I have appreciated about my relationship with Dean has been it's not just all centered around me and my growth and how am I doing, there's not a lot of pressure to perform and there's not a lot of pressure to get it right. In fact, a lot of my reports back to him haven't been quote unquote reports. We've just been sharing life together. So he's telling me stories about his own life, his own challenges, his mm -hmm. own hiccups in ministry or whatever is happening. He's sharing himself with me. 
and inviting me to share myself with him in return. And part of that is discussing what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives at that moment. So he is modeling for me what it means to be vulnerable, to be in process, to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, to have learned some things, but to recognize very strongly that I am learning some things. I learned so much from him just based on what he is modeling and not by what he's teaching, because he doesn't even approach this with a teaching mindset. Yeah, absolutely. This makes total sense to me. You know, I'm thinking about uh, one of my wife's mentors that has been really impactful in her life over the last year as we've been in Springfield. And their relationship started off, uh, I don't want to say it started off a little rocky, but the woman who's mentoring her essentially, I think, was looking for something programmatic to do with her. And my wife, like, loves Jesus and is deeply influential in her chosen vocation. And, like, she checks all the Christian boxes. And I think her mentor was a little bit at a loss for, how can I programmatically mentor you? And uh, Mm. my wife basically just said something to the effect of, I don't really want you to programmatically mentor me. I want you to be an older, wiser follower of Jesus who's just, there and we talk. (laughs) Yes, yes. And what's interesting to me is how much that relationship has come to mean to my wife in the last year. And there is no plan. There is no program. But boy, when she wants to talk about something, she knows who she's going to reach out to. And that sort of natural organicness, I think is one end of the spectrum of discipleship. Again, I think the newer somebody is in following Jesus, the more programmatic, the more specific goal-driven, content-driven, direction-driven it needs to be. But as someone gets more and more mature, the less of that they need and the more that they just need an older, wiser friend who is just further along. That can rub off like you were saying. Paul said multiple times, follow me as I follow Christ. Right. Yes. And so it's funny because I think you used language earlier that says, okay, you're at A, I'm at B, or I have been to B, let me show you how to get there, which I think is great language. But there's also something to be said for, hey, I've crossed off a number of the letters of the alphabet. And let's explore moving to whatever one you need to move to next. And maybe I've been there, and maybe I'm still trying to get there myself. But none of that really matters because we are working on this together. That attitude, and one, that's not linear, because I don't think growth is linear. And two, it's much more fluid to whatever the needs of the individual happens to be in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it it stops asking at that point, is this the right next letter for me to get to? And maybe that's a piece of what we were hitting on by by starting off talking about a desire for discipleship without shame. Maybe a piece of it is 
there doesn't have to always be one right next step. And maybe right is the wrong question. If you are at L and you want to move to D, okay. I don't need to evaluate for you whether that's the right step for you in this process. I love this phrase, discerning the Holy Spirit together. Hmm. I, I just thought that was a great description of mentoring a more mature follower of Jesus. And honestly, even with younger followers of Jesus, less mature followers of Jesus, if there are 16 things in their lives that they need to be working on, sometimes as a mentor or discipler, I still need to let them pick the one that they want to work on now, even if I would disagree on which one they need to work on, because at least they'll be working on something that they care about. And that sort of secondary value of learning to discern the spirit and choose for themselves without somebody cracking the whip is of inherent value. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me as I reflect on scripture, because some, some of what we're saying here, I think resonates strongly with scripture. There are other parts of it that I think if misunderstood could collide with scripture in an interesting way because one could listen to our conversation here and think oh so there's no boundaries there's no rules there's no end point you're trying to arrive at this is all just kind of very loose and whatever the mentee wants to do is fine it's not that and you know when you look at scripture and i've been reading the sermon on the mount quite a bit lately that's some pretty pointed teaching that is really hard. And mm. there are times where Jesus has some really harsh words for the Pharisees, and Paul and Peter have some pretty harsh words to or about other people. There is a measure of intensity or boundaries around discipleship. And so I think to myself, was that shame-inducing? If I think the ideal is to disciple without shame, what do I do with those? You know, there's still boundaries around this. There's still a, a direction we're heading, but it might not be a linear path to get there, but there's still a direction and there's still rules involved in it. Well, and I would add, even calling out someone's sinful behavior does not inherently have to be shame-inducing, even if you do so harshly. I think it is far more shame-inducing to say to somebody, you're right, that's bad behavior, but, you know, at the end of the day, I just don't think you can do any better, so <laughs> just go ahead and keep doing that. That is shame-inducing. It's not shame-inducing to say, yeah, that is not okay behavior. You know it's not okay. I know it's not okay. I fully believe you can do differently. Let's talk about how to get there. And I'm here with you as long as it takes. Yeah. And even if you're not taking that sort of, excuse the, the excessive word here, but that coddling approach, that surrounding them and, and supporting them in the process approach. I think of like a small child reaching their hand for a hot burner. No. And a very emphatic no. Do not do that. Do not ever touch that. That can burn you. It will hurt. Do not do it. None of that is shame producing. 
Now, maybe your child is sensitive in those types of words or whatever might not resonate well with them. But just overall, that is not a shame-inducing statement. But if I were to go on and say, you always do this kind of thing, you're never thinking, you're never paying attention, you don't get the dangers around you, you need to get your head on straight. These are shame-inducing things. Um, Absolutely. You keep a, there's a really valuable distinction there. Talk about the behavior is not shame-inducing. Talk about the person is shame-inducing. You know, I can all day long say, that is not good for you. I am inherently holding you up to be a person of high value. You are better than that. There is no reason you need to do this. You have to stop that. This is going to hold you back. I can say it a million different ways, but I am affirming the value of the person and the unworthiness of the behavior. Or I can affirm the unworthiness of the person. And right. Those are just different. Or if we raise the behavior itself on some level to be equal with the person's identity or value, mm. I don't go to my two-year-old every day and say, now, did you touch the hot stove today? Okay, you didn't. Good. Right? I'm not predicating their worth or value to me on whether or not they didn't do that thing. And sometimes I think Mm -hmm. we raise a behavior, like I said earlier about the stop it, we're giving it way too much power and making it the supreme thing in somebody's life. I think we do this with our pet sins in the church. Homosexuality is a great example where we have elevated it to be the defining mark of somebody. And if this is still there, and if if you haven't stopped touching the stove, then... We don't have anything more to say to one another. Really? Yeah. Well, we do something very similar in accountability relationships. You and I have fallen into this. If we are holding each other accountable on a particular behavior, how often have we said to each other, and we've discussed the fact that we need to not do this, but how often have we said to each other, hey, if you're struggling with that, feel free to give me a call. Mm. When we have discussed the fact that what is actually far more helpful is when we just reach out to each other to talk about some other random thing. If I know I might be struggling with something right, you know, in an hour, why not just text you about something random and keep the connection alive? And that in and of itself is powerful. I don't need to make it all about the struggle or the sin. It's about far more than that. Yes. I've, I just love that. I love the conversation that we've had and covering the whole range of what induces shame, what doesn't induce shame, how we should disciple somebody in the early stages of their faith versus the latter stages of their faith or somewhere in between. I think this has been a super good conversation for me. And I hope Dean feels blessed by it. Um, I have been blessed by him. But I would love to hear from our audience. What do you reflect on in terms of discipleship and shame? Have you had some positive mentoring or discipleship experiences? What made it so positive? And how have you experienced the growth process? I would love to hear more about it from everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I would add to that, you know, Dean, in particular, if you are a good mentor, you will 
faithfully share our posts about these episodes. <laughs> um, yeah, because so, that's not shame-filled. Yes, exactly. No, but uh, I do want to use that as a segue to invite people to share this episode with people if it is meaningful to them and a good conversation starter with somebody else that they know. Yeah, absolutely. It would be a great, great conversation. And maybe it'll help you establish a mentoring relationship if you're not already in one. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, what else are you thinking about these days? What else is going on in the academic mind of Josh from Oregon? (laughs) I I say all of that and you're going to share some random thought about Tic Tacs or something. (laughs) I know you've really set me up big time. Uh, So I think I've mentioned I am taking two distinct classes this semester, one very heavy theology on the doctrine of God, and then the other on spiritual formation. And it's using very opposite sides of my brain and kind of blending the two sides to a spiritual walk that I really, really enjoy. So this actually comes from the spiritual formation side. And I'm reading a book called Opening to God by David Benner. And have you read this? Ooh, I haven't. It's on my shelf to read. And Benner, of course, is amazing. We've read several of his books, I think, together. Mm-hmm. And I please tell me your thoughts. Yeah, David Benner is fantastic. So anything you're going to pick up by him is great. This is kind of sub, his subtitle has to do with Lectio Divina. So it's talking about prayer through some of these ancient practices, if you will. But he's spending these early chapters expounding upon what really is prayer. At the heart of it, what are we talking about? And kind of similar to our conversation about a lack of shame, he's trying to divorce the idea of prayer from the idea of obligation. And saying, look, this isn't some spiritual discipline that you have, that you're obligated to to master or to fit into your life or whatever. He said, you know, at the end of the day, prayer is as easy as breathing. This is a natural thing for our souls to do. And in the end, prayer is not initiative. And I love how he defines it. Instead, prayer is consent. Prayer is nothing more than consenting to God's active work in your life. He supplies all of the initiative. He always has. The only thing you're doing in prayer, whether you're using words or whether you're sitting in silence, is you are consenting to God's involvement in whatever it is you're praying about and in consenting in his, to his involvement in your life. That is a very different perspective on prayer than, again, the shame-based, are you praying? You should be praying. How often are you praying? How long are you praying? Are you praying about that? Prayer is just easy. It's, it's just what your soul does when you give it permission to do so. So just open yourself up to God and provide consent for him to step in. I appreciate his perspective. That is so good. Now I have to figure out where my copy of that book is. (laughs) Yeah, and all of David Benner's books are super short, super accessible to anybody. So I'd encourage anybody to find their copy, 
whether that means by clicking the right buttons on Amazon or whatever, but find a copy, pick it up. Great, great stuff. But what about you? What are you thinking about? You know, I'm coming back to a book that I read years ago. We as church staff are going through Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in the chapter we recently went over together as a staff, Covey, who is the effective leadership guru, says, essentially, if he could get every leader to do one thing to be a more effective person and leader, that one single thing would be to plan out their entire week ahead of time. I was very challenged by him saying that. So this week I have gone through and figured out a way to plan my week out. And I have to say, I have had not only a more productive week, but a more positive week, a more enjoyable week, because I feel like, well, number one, on a practical level, I am accomplishing things I would have forgotten to accomplish. (laughs) Number two, on an emotional level, it is deeply satisfying to accomplish everything. I am two days in a row. I have successfully completed everything on my task list. And that just makes me feel good. Yeah. So I am caught by both the objective and the subjective benefits of weekly planning. I feel like I have to do this with my school schedule because I have to work it around my work schedule and my family schedule. And so I take my entire semester and I map it out using the syllabus and put all of my assignments in there and break them up however I need to, to get them done on time. And I like literally map it out. And then I assign a time value to every single thing based on how many minutes per page it's going to take me or whatever. And therefore now I've got my list. I've got everything I have to do this week and the hours that I expect it to take. And it all works great until life happens and it destroys my schedule. Yeah, that is the challenging part. Uh, But (laughs) nevertheless, it is nice to start out with a plan. Uh, Yes. Yeah. None of which was to say you shouldn't have a plan, but maybe. No, no, of course not. White space in the plan. Yeah, I think that's exactly it is making sure there's, at least for me, there has to be far more white space or margin in the plan than I would have acknowledged when I was in my 30s or in my 20s. Hmm. Life just is not going to happen the way that I expect it to on any level. So let me be honest about that and (laughs) just leave large chunks of open space, knowing that they will get filled with things that are wildly important. Yes, yes. But I feel like a newscaster doing these transitions. But speaking of getting filled with things that are wildly important... Are which Josh? Oh. <laughs> I just figured out. Wow! I suspect there are people who are listening who figured out where you were going faster than I just did. Wow! Um, I am slow on the uptake here, but all right. 
Yes. Speaking of getting filled with things that are wildly important, what were you going to say? (laughs) I was going to say our which Josh question this week is which Josh would eat a McGriddle, again, eating things that are, I don't know, getting filled with things that are important. Which Josh would eat a McGriddle every day for the rest of his life if he thought he could get away with it? Ooh. And I will tell you, it is definitely not me. Not <laughs> on any level. So you must be a McGriddle supersized fan. I love the McGriddle. I don't really love anything from McDonald's except this. And let me be clear, though. It has to be the sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle. I used shorthand once upon a time to order just the sausage and egg McGriddle. That's what you get. Or no, actually, I ordered the sausage McGriddle. If that's what you say, that's what you get. You don't get the egg and the cheese. You have to say all of the components that you would like in it. But anyway, if you successfully mm-hmm. manage to order a sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle, it will change your life. It did for me. I like. I've. I absolutely love these things. And now I need to eat more than one salad because I did not get this way by more than just one McGriddle. Oh man, I, I got to tell you, I my recollection of the McGriddle itself is that it tastes rubbery, like a soggy. McMuffin, English. So you're muffin. not wrong about but, any of that. I just think that's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> oh man, I uh, I am a McDonald's breakfast lover, and partly because I am a McDonald's breakfast lover, I have given up fast food. Like I have not eaten fast food in quite some time. I am trying to make it so that I am not the kind of person who eats fast food. But I may make an exception just to see if uh, this is actually worth it. Maybe I will set the goal. If I don't eat any fast food between when we record this and when it comes out, I can celebrate with a McGriddle. (laughs) Well, you know, you did celebrate getting out of your training early and went and saw the world's largest ketchup bottle. So I know you know my advice is worth it. Yes, that was was advice. That was definitely advice. Um, (laughs) Not good advice, but... Yeah, it was advice. Right. On that note, are we on for next week? We absolutely are. I'm looking forward to it. All right, I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. Okay, bye.